Hello, this is Janet Gallen welcoming you to Love Letters Live. And today's guest is a partnership from a guest of a while ago. Today is Richard Carlin, who wrote with Ken Bloom a book called, you say the name of the book. I like you to do it. Oh, it's called UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. Okay. I, and by the way, I am loving it. Oh, great. It's so interesting. And it has brought up so many questions um, about you and about the book. May I just start right in? Sure. Okay. So I, I'm going to give it to you first. You talk about yourself. I know you're a writer. Mm -hmm. Spend a minute or two talking about some of the other things that you've written. Okay. Well, um, I've been very much involved with uh, publishing books on music and writing them uh, for over 30 years, really. Uh, I was, in fact, the way I met Ken was I edited several books that he wrote. Ah. I was working at various different publishing companies and, and we became friends and um, that's how this idea of collaborating came together. Um, but, you've al but you've always written about music? Yeah. I've always written about music. Um, I started out um, writing, believe it or not, instructional books. Uh -huh. uh, and then I got more into the reference end. And then uh, I've always been a big fan of country music. So oh, I wrote me too. that. And um, then I got really interested in a figure named Morris Levy, who was, um, who started Birdland in New York. He was a Jewish immigrant. Uh, he had a background that resonated with my family's background, but uh, but he was also very involved with the mob. So not <laughs> completely not completely uh, similar to my family, uh, but and I had always wanted to write a biography, so that was my kind of first full blown biography. And when I started to think about writing about Yubi, I I realized that Ken had such a deep knowledge of Broadway and the history of African-American theater. And I had knowledge about music um, that it might make a good partnership and oh. sort of fell into working together. We wrote liner notes for um, the reissue that probably Ken mentioned of yeah. the original Shuffle Along recordings. And to everyone's surprise, we won a Grammy for that. Um, uh, probably spuriously, but but that's okay. We'll take it. Doesn't matter. Yes. So <laughs> let me ask you something. You mentioned your family. I'm mm -hmm. always interested in family journeys and what was your upbringing, mm -hmm. if I may ask. I, I mean, I guess I should be more specific, but what was there musically in your family well, that right. led you to where, uh-huh? Yeah, my parents were, uh, I guess, classic New York progressive liberal communist uh, <laughs> people who were, um, particularly my mother, was very active in politics and uh, unusually for her time was also uh, waited to get married till she was almost 30 and oh. had a career and continued. What was, what was her career? She actually was a gerontologist. Well, she ended up, she started out as a, as a therapist uh, or a psychologist, uh -huh. and, but she ended up working in gerontology and, and very annoyingly went back to graduate school when she was in her 60s, did better than I was doing in grad school at the time and, and um, ended up writing about five books on aging. Wow. And, okay, uh, so you come to all this very honestly. Yeah, my dad, um, 
was an ultrasonic engineer. He also kind of accidentally through, he, he had very bad vision. So during the war, he ended up um, working in the Signal Corps and they said, does anyone have experience with working on radios? And he, he had been sort of an amateur radio bug. So he ended up working on the first ultrasonic equipment and eventually he designed the first baby scanner and wrote the first oh, wow. in English. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of a, it wasn't a musical family from that point of view, although my mother had, when she was very much younger, had played piano. She didn't really play much by the time uh, kids were around, my older brother and I, but they did take us to numerous concerts. My, uh, particularly, you know, uh, the uh, progressive kind of people you'd expect like Pete Seeger and- Sure, sure. And, uh, but my dad also loved classical music and we moved to Princeton, New Jersey when I was in the fourth grade and they subscribed to a classical series there, which was booked by the same guy who booked Lincoln Center. So every, just about every week we went and heard classical. But you come from a genetic line of diligence. Well, I don't know about diligence. Well, you talk about your mother. I mean, what your mother did took some diligence. In, oh, in my mother's family, yes, was very organized. My father's family was probably more eccentric. So I have a little bit of both. Okay. Um, well, so so my question is, I've got a lot of questions actually, but one of the things is, um, yes. By the way, I I too come from a musical, but all classical, mm -hmm. my upbringing. Um, classical, romantic, little Prokofiev and opera. Mm, okay. and, then, and then I, oh, and then I heard and saw Mark O'Connor. Oh, okay. And went nuts. Anyway, um, but what I wanted to ask you is what, what makes you or any good historian, and Ken says that you're the detail person, Right, probably what so. Do you, do you sit in the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian Institute for years and gather information? How do you start? Well, I mean, the inspiration for me was uh, one thing I didn't mention was my parents started me on the piano. When I was quite young. I uh -huh. was not a great pianist, but I got very enthusiastic about ragtime piano in the early 70s. Yes. And UB actually came to Princeton and performed in 72 and I heard him I was only in high school but I went to hear him and I and I was really bowled over and then of course I was further exposed to his music through this great album that John Hammond produced called the 86 years of UB Blake um <clears throat> so I had always been where very you, where do you start uh well luckily for us UB was married two times and both times his wives were pack rats. And unlike many historic figures where you have to piece together a lot of the information as I had to do with Morris Levy, uh, UB's papers were quite carefully preserved. He had a very good lawyer at the end of his life who guarded him like a, like a hawk. Good. And everything went to the Maryland Historical Society where they're, so, I mean, unlike if you can imagine an artist who recorded in 1917 and we still have the paperwork, the contract, the royalty statements, I mean, that kind of stuff 
is gold. Okay, but so you you Never. go you yeah. go in there and you have permission to go into this place, right? Right, right. That's one of the many archives that we used, but it was a really foundational because there was so much stuff there. I would imagine. Yeah, uh, that you just don't normally find A in one place and <laughs> and B relatively organized. And so you just take notes and notes and notes and notes and then go home with it? Well, I mean, your first preparation is to see what, you know, there was an existing biography that was written when he was alive. There was also an oral history. Well, there were many, many interviews done after he was quote unquote rediscovered in the early seventies. So first you sort of have to immerse yourself in, you know, his story and sort of getting the general parameters of that and his background. And another thing that we were very fortunate was not only was he interviewed dozens, if not hundreds of times, he had a memory. He had both an ear and a memory that were quite remarkable. Um, as a musician, he could imitate people's voices. And so he would tell stories about Burt Williams, the very famous uh, African-American comedian of the turn of the century. And he would do the act in Burt Williams' voice, which is pretty amazing. And, you know, for somebody who was in his 80s and then 90s, he would recall with great precision when things happened. Now, he didn't always, sometimes he would get it, you know, slightly confused as to what decade it was or, you know, that kind of thing. But everyone does. Right. But he was probably 75% of the time spot on. And like with, were, with what? Give us an example. Of well, like, for example, he recalled the day that the fire occurred in Baltimore in 1905. Wow which affected him because he was already as a teenager working as a pianist. And after that fire, a lot of the venues that he played were destroyed. And also the vice commission came in rather strongly. Because he was playing in a brothel? Well, they, there was a big crackdown on brothels and bars. Uh, it occurred in a lot of American cities around that time. And so, um, uh, you know, you probably might have, some of your listeners may have heard of the Comstock, you know, commissions. They were, they sort of spread like wildfire across the country. So all of a sudden, Yubi had to look for new venues to play in. And that's what led him. I mean, he was quite happy in Baltimore and probably never would have left it except for this occurrence. Um, one thing that's very odd, and nobody really has an answer to this, is he, he, added four years to his age. He, he always said he was born in 1893, uh, 1883, sorry, but he was actually born in 1887. And there's very did, solid- Did he do this from the time he was very young and he wanted to play piano in the Broadway? Well, I, I don't think anywhere. I don't think he, you know, he said he had to rent a pair of long pants because he didn't have long pants yet when he First was playing in the bar. He'd go across the street to the pool hole and give somebody a quarter for a pair of pants he could borrow. I don't, my theory is that his wife was, his first wife was slightly older. He was determined to live to be a hundred years old. Oh. And this, the, the mystery of this or the miracle of this is he in fact died in 1983. And so for many years, it was believed he lived to be a hundred years old until oh. the birth certificate. Okay 
and other documentation turn up. Now, how you would know in advance that you had to add exactly four years, I mean. Yes, okay, let me ask you something. What What is, I mean, there were so many, there are so many shocking realities in this book of yours. What is the most surprising or shocking thing that you learned about him and his life? I mean, I know. Well, I mean, I know, you know, we talk very much today about systemic racism and what does that mean? And for me, one of the things that also has interested me, there's two things really about Yubi that interest me and they do kind of tie in with Morris Levy is that, you know, you very rarely get histories. Most jazz histories or ragtime histories are more about, you know, oh, he played here and he did this, but uh, they don't really talk about the business side of it. You know, how were they treated? How much money did they make? Right. You know, and with Morris Levy, that was a big issue because Birdland was a front for the mob. The other thing that was interesting about Morris Levy was he, he made his first recordings of bebop and he ended up as a key player in rap. So his music, his musical career spanned quite an interesting slice of American popular music. Well, Yubi, you know, was almost a hundred years of American popular music. And unlike a lot of other artists, he kept growing as an artist. He didn't, he didn't ghettoize himself or you know, probably not the right term, but he, he, he was always interested in learning new, new techniques. And he was quite advanced in his harmony, melody and rhythm um, and quite a distinctive musician. So that was of interest to me, but certainly, you know, I was unaware of some of the more shady practices of producers like Lou Leslie, who's famously produced the Blackbird series of oh, okay. so Broadway shows. What were those shady? I'm not aware of those well, either. Well, basically what he would do is he would incorporate, you know, he did several years of these shows and they always ended in bankruptcy. Uh, they, even the most successful one, somehow he managed to bleed them dry. And it wasn't unusual at that time for the cast and company, if they were touring, to literally be left wherever they were, the money would be gone, and they had to figure out how they'd get back to New York. Wow. That was one indignity, but the other indignity, of course, and again, thanks to the fact that UB kept account books, he'd be hired to be paid, let's say, $300 a week to conduct the orchestra, but he was never paid that amount. He was, you know, what orchestra was he hired to conduct? Because I have a for question. For the show. In other words, he wrote music oh, oh, for Blackbirds of 1930. Okay. And he, with Andy Razeff, the very famous lyricist. That's his own, his own orchestra. Right. And he also conducted the, the, the band for the show. And uh, at the end of the run, Lou Leslie, not surprisingly, declared bankruptcy for Blackbirds of 1930 and stranded the cast. Luckily, they were just in Newark, New Jersey. So Ethel Waters talks, tells the story of driving some of them home in her car back to Harlem. Um, but he immediately raised money for Blackbirds of 1931. So it's not like he was really broke. Mm -hmm. But when Yubi went to ASCAP and said, hey, I was never paid royalties for this music. I was, you know, he owes me all this money back pay they couldn't collect because Blackbirds of 1930 was bankrupt. But Blackbirds of 1931 
<laughs> was very solvent. But in, in other words, he could always shield himself. And this happened to white composers too, don't get me wrong, but it happened much more frequently to black composers. Let me ask you, so I did read one thing that I just found so shocking in a world of, you know, systemic, systemic racism that people yeah. are, I guess, more aware of than ever, right. um, that he, there was a, an orchestra of white musicians who refused to follow the lead of a black conductor. Oh, sure. Talk sure. about that. I mean, that's, well, by the way, isn't that just cutting off their nose to spite their face? Well, um, it all, you know, it's complicated. Everything about race in America is complicated. Okay. I mean, black music and black rhythms became incredibly popular. Right. And there was suddenly a fad for black orchestras. I mean, UB speaks to some of the sort of what some people would consider benign racism, I suppose, in the fact that a black it's orchestra- I'm sorry, benign what? Racism. Oh, now what would uh, that be, for example? Well, uh, I, again, that's probably not exactly the right term, but for example, when, when a black orchestra was hired to play in a white ballroom, they never brought music, even though they all read music. They had memorized their parts, whereas a white orchestra would always have music. Well, why is that so? Really, because why is this? White, whites preferred to think that blacks were natural musicians. And they didn't like to think that they were trained or that they could actually read music. How weird. Which is weird, right? But <laughs> it plays into that stereotype. If you read the really? contemporary reviews, they're always saying stuff like, oh, they dance to their natural rhythm. And, and in a way that's very insulting. It's saying like they haven't spent years training or there's no art or technique in what they do, which is of course ludicrous. But now, by the way, if in fact the, anybody's view was that they didn't need to read music because they could just do it with, that's brilliant enough. Well, yeah, but again, it's, it's, you know, it's a two-edged attitude, right? right. And yeah. it was a way of keeping black musicians in their place. Now, in this particular instance that you're talking about that we discussed in the book, there was a traveling vaudeville show that was led by a blackface comedian, so a white in blackface, and he, but the score was, was ragtime. And he had his own orchestra, and he came to Baltimore and his conductor got sick. So he went to the musicians union and said, hey, I need a conductor who can handle ragtime. And they said, well, you be, you know, he could obviously do that, but they didn't say he was black. So when you showed up, the musicians were, you know, at first were unwilling to work with him because, you know, they were prejudiced. But I, obviously, but like, what was their verbal, what did they say? You know, we're not going to take direction from a black man. Oh, just like that. Yeah. Okay. But you, the one thing about Yubi, and this goes back to his childhood, we talk about it in the book and his father's attitude towards oh, yes. racism. Yubi uh, was always, you know, he fought racism by doing what he did and showing that he could do it. And so he, he, he didn't like, walk away he simply said to them look you know play me the music and they they couldn't master the the rhythm 
And so Yubi sat at the piano and played all the parts. And suddenly they said, oh, wow, this guy really does know right. what he's doing. Yeah. So he always felt that the best answer to racist attitudes was to, to show that, you know, your talent and let your talent speak for itself. Now, later in life, Bill Balcom, who uh, was a ragtime revivalist, also very well known, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, told me a story that he and Yubi were invited to play on PBS, you know, public television. Mm -hmm. When they got there, they, you know, because Yubi was a ragtime pianist, they had this set with a broken down, barely bare playable piano on it. Like it was supposed to be a honky tonk where a person like Yubi would be playing. And Yubi, you know, it would, Balcom felt it was an insult to Yubi, and at first he said to him, come on, we're not playing this job. And Yubi said, oh no, they're paying me to do this and I'm a professional. If they want me to play on an old broken down piano, I will do it because, you know, I'm here to do my work. And Balcom said to me, that was an incredible lesson to him. But again, it was incredibly insulting. Here was this master pianist and, you know, if it had been a classical pianist, they would have had a Steinway there. Right. But, you know, I mean, honky-tonk, I love honky-tonk, good honky-tonk piano. But um, there are different, I don't know what you call it, you know, different styles that are relevant. Well, different styles, but that doesn't mean you, you... Right. I mean, you can take an artist like Yubi. Right. Or a great classical pianist. Choose your favorite, Glenn Gould or Vladimir Horowitz let's say, and give them any piano. Right. And they will sound like themselves. Yes. Which is one of the great mysteries in life because how many musicians are there out there that go, oh, I want to play the piano that Horowitz played because then I'll sound like him. No, you won't. Right. That's, that's the truth. You know, you, I, you, see, you see actually a lot of, well, I don't know about a lot, but I have seen modern classical violinists trying to do, for example, what Mark O'Connor does. Right. They don't sound like him. No. They could pick up his violin. Or, or Michael Cleveland. Like yeah. him. He could pick up their violin and he would sound like him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, right. yeah, that's true. But it's still an insult, right? To give well, some broken the, down the, instrument. The insult is also the presumption that you know what this person's... Um, you know, limits or boundaries are. Right. And there right. are in fact none. I know. So right. what, what is, I, I did read something that for some reason I was so touched by it. Mm -hmm. He had done ragging the scales. Right, right. And never, uh, you know, never, never claimed it, never did a, what, a copyright. Right, right. And somebody else got it and did it. He, he said, how sweet of him. Well, I didn't think you could copyright the scales. Well, I mean, the whole story is quite amusing. He had a friend, another black pianist, who um, he tells a story about him. Every time he played a hymn, he would rag it and it would irritate the people who had requested it from him. One thing you be learned very early and any musician who works in a bar or, or even a whorehouse is you're like a jukebox. And if the patrons are paying you or tipping you, yes. you play what they ask for. So sure. his repertory was not fancy ragtime piano. His repertory were popular songs like Daisy, you know, or, you know, uh, 
anything that people requested. Opera selections. People asked for it, UB played it. Well, now, so how did, how did, I, I just want you to take the jump only because we're somewhat limited by time and I think this sure. is important. Yeah. Jump between his beginnings and his being a smash on Broadway. And what is a minstrel show? Oh, gee. Well, there's no short answer for what is a minstrel show. Uh, minstrelsy was an American theatrical tradition that dated back before the Civil War. Right. And basically, the early minstrel performers uh, were inspired by Black enslaved musicians. Oh, but they weren't Black musicians. But they were not Black. They were oh. white performers, Dan Emmett, some of you, who claimed to have been the author of Dixie, although there is controversy about that. But in any case, um, they would appear in blackface and they were called delineators because they were supposedly presenting for a white audience what black entertainers were like. Um, and so they were sort of like think of them as the Pat Boone to the Little Richard, right? They were the <laughs> in-between type person, but they're actually, a minstrel show actually formed a certain kind of format, which influenced American theater and fed into vaudeville. Eventually- So wait, so it came before vaudeville? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And eventually after the Civil War, the only opportunities for blacks to perform were ironically, in the minstrel format. And- Oh, it did become something that black performers yes, did. Yes, and in fact, early black comedians uh, picked up many of the so-called tropes of minstrelsy. So Miller and Lyles, who were the comedian stars of Shuffle Along, UB's major Broadway hit of 1921, had been performing on vaudeville, but they basically portrayed two standard minstrel characters, which actually you can still see today in sort of comedy duos. You know, the Sharpie, the guy who's really slick, and the the conned person or the the, you know, the rude. That with the Smothers Brothers also. I right. Mean, the Smothers Brothers were minstrels without blackface. Oh, okay. That makes sense to me. Right. Yes. Okay. So so Miller and Lyles had a routine that was very much based in minstrelsy. And it's one of the reasons, there are many reasons, they're complicated, but one of the reasons that Shuffle Along can't really be revived. It, it was a series of sketches. It wasn't really a book musical in the modern sense. And it had very, what we would consider to be racist content. Sure. Uh, or racist humor. Now, uh, now how did, so, how did, he got, I mean, I'm, I'm rushing a little bit because- Yeah, yeah I understand. I, I wish you could spend the week with me doing this, but yeah. um, anyway, I just want to do, I do want to say that if people buy the book, they're going to get a lot of delicious details. Sure. And so, but he ended up getting the Freedom Medal from the White House. I mean, here he is, this genius has gone from playing in whorehouses, to, from the whorehouse to the White House. Right, exactly. And well, you know, I mean, I think UB had several things working for him. One is, as as we've said, his attitude. He, he remarkable. He had a remarkably tolerant. I mean, it's that, not that yes. it's not that he was, you know, 
unaware of this racism and it's not that he didn't fight it. He sounded like a very allowing human being. But he, yeah, he was a very forgiving human being and a very warm human being. As we said, he kept growing with the times. And then, you know, like anything, there was a sort of a, an element of accident to it, his rediscovery because mm -hmm. there was this ragtime revival that occurred mostly, uh, people would be familiar with it through the movie, The Sting. Although I guess not everybody knows about that movie anymore, but it used the music of Scott Joplin and suddenly right. there was right. this awareness of ragtime. Yubi, if you get a chance to see any of his performances on YouTube or um, even listen to his interviews, uh, had a wonderful stage presence and personality. Oh, he must have. And by the way, my younger daughter just reminded me this morning that I apparently took her to see Yubi, exclamation point. Oh, the show, right. Uh-huh, in the 70s. Right, right. And so he was fortunate that he was rediscovered at the right time. He had a wonderful personality and he ended up on Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson actually loved him because he was um, uh, a very sharp and, and clever performer and uh, uh, didn't let Johnny Carson get the better of him as an interviewer, which Carson really enjoyed. So, so you know, at, uh, when Jimmy Carter was president and he was open to giving medals to people like Yubi, that, that he ended up getting the... Wonderful. You know, I want to thank you for doing this with me. I, I've, I've learned so much from reading this book, things that I had no idea about and yeah. some things that I did have an idea about. And it was wonderful to see how you present it. Um, but I have a question for you because I am basically about love letters. Okay. And of course, I listened to you and I listened to Ken. Mm -hmm. And my question is always, you know, I know that every, every experience in life whether it's a good one or a bad one, right. has seeds in it of a love letter to someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm thinking, so obviously to write one to UB Blake, but where would we send it? Because I know he doesn't have children. Um, right, right. If you were to write a love letter right now based on your life in this regard, who would it be to? Well, I mean, I think the book is a love letter to Of you. course it is, yes. Of course it is. Um... I'm thinking of something in your handwriting. Yeah. That gets sent to, and by the way, I just want to say something. A book as a gift is a wonderful piece of stationery for a love letter because there's that fly leaf. Sure. It's just begging for you to write something to somebody. Yes. Right. I don't in know. fact, that, that is a, a kind of gift that, it's the gift that keeps giving, as they say. For sure. I, I think, and I, this is going to sound impossibly corny, but um, I have an extremely tolerant wife oh. uh, who has always followed my enthusiasms, maybe uh, even when they're not her own. Uh, and she also was professionally a library and archivist. I read so that, yeah. So she was very helpful throughout the process and actually accompanied Ken and I on some of the trips to libraries and when she could. Um, and um, so, I mean, in a way, every book is a love letter to her. It's a love letter to my family. Yes. Uh, to my brother and my parents. Oh, so you've got a whole list of people you could write love letters to. Yeah. I, 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 as they say, you, you stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. Of course, of course. And um, Have you ever written to your wife? 
I have written to my wife. I don't know that I've written a classic love letter. Well, uh, love letter is now, now I'll be on the hook for it because if she hears this, I'll. <laughs> You're kind of obligated. You know, I, a love letter is really a, a letter about somebody else's wonderful qualities. Right. They're usually not romantic. No, and, and yeah, I mean, well, I, hope I, think, you do. I think that we we in life tend to take for granted those people that help us. And um, I've tried to, as I've gotten older, even for small things, to remember to say to someone, hey, you know, thanks. Yeah, that's so important. And, um, and that's a form of, uh, of love. It certainly is. And by the way, a thank you note is one of the great areas yeah. of love. Well, I want to thank you for doing this. I'm going to get back to reading your book. I am, I am taking it slowly, by the way. I am, as a rule, a fast reader. And mm -hmm. there are paragraphs and pages that I read a second time. Well, that's wonderful. It's because, wonderful to hear. Yeah. It's wonderful to hear because, you know, There's when you're so much in book, this is, this is not sort of a, a solitary can't. activity. And, and if you, you know, if one reader uh, gets inspired to learn more or to go listen. I right. mean, the main the Oh, thing I, I did that too. I mean, I, I, I spent some time on YouTube, of course, because yeah. that's a miracle we're given. Um, yeah. But there's so much in it. You know, there's some paragraphs that just bear reading more than once because there's more to learn. Well, thank yeah. you, dear. I appreciate thank you so much. It's great to meet you and uh, hope nice. your listeners all run to their bookstores. Or I do. Okay. <laughs> say, the say the name of the book one more time. It's called Ubi Blake, Rags, Rhythms, and Race, and it's written by Richard Carlin and Ken Bloom. And the cover, by the way, is a picture of that man sitting at a piano mm -hmm. with those hands. Okay, thank you. Thanks. I'll talk to you later, and I hope to see you in New York or San Francisco one of these yeah, days. Yeah, whenever the craziness passes, and let's yeah. hope tomorrow the craziness really passes. If there's, always, there's always a hope for a start of craziness, um, yes. <laughs> Okay, thank you, dear. And so I'm going to say goodbye from Love Letters right now and okay. talk to you all later. All right. Bye.